In this episode of Octal FM, we discuss our favourite real-time strategy games from the late 90s to the present day. Hello again, welcome to another episode of Oxl FM. I'm Sefran and I'm joined by Gelada. Hello. Uh, and what we're we talking about today, bud? Today, we are talking about our favourite real-time strategy games. I guess it's worth talking about what they actually are in case you have never played a real-time strategy game before. So, what are real-time strategy games? RTS games for short, because we'll probably end up saying that throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah, we will say RTS a lot. They encompass a lot. I mean, they're strategy games. So if you imagine a a real time version of chess, I think that's quite a quite a succinct analogy. Mm, yeah, to some extent. They generally have a lot of similar themes across all RTS games. Things like building up a base of buildings and resource gathering, and also a lot of different levels of sort of tactical combat and general tactics throughout the game some micromanagement style tactics where you're perhaps you're in combat with another player and you are moving your units around to to in a sort of pincer movement around them or you're you know targeting particular units of theirs to attack and things like that but also macro tactics of what units are good at countering other units what type of technology you should research to gain an advantage over over the technology your uh, opponents are picking, all of those kinds of things. And also fundamentally, they are about the combat. I mean, I think an RTS game is a pretty poor RTS game if the combat is dull. It needs to be an exciting game to have that fight against your against your opponent or your many opponents if it's a team-based strategy game. And one of the things that you'll find about RTS games is that they often have very varying uh, game lengths. So some might only last, say, 10 or 15 minutes and be quite quick and snappy games, whereas others can go on for hours and hours at a time with massive armies clashing against one another. Yeah, exactly. And also that can be not just between different games, as in different game titles, but also in one game, even just the same game. Sometimes games will be really short, and sometimes they will take forever, depending on how well balanced the players are, but also depending on what tactics they use. There are so many, there's so much depth to strategy games, um, which is why the, um, some strategy games are very popular. Um, esports titles, they're quite popular and exciting to watch, particularly the more fast-paced um, strategy games. Obviously, the big one at the moment would be StarCraft Two. Absolutely massive. Uh, and that really emphasizes the very fast paced act and the nature of the game as well, where things like clicks per minute and clicks per second are a very big thing. Being able to micromanage all units at once using button clicks and keyboard shortcuts uh, and managing things like a build order and making sure you know what you're going to build and when you're going to build it at that point to begin the most efficient use of your resources. And as with a lot of video games, a lot of the games that are played competitively or are played quite intensely often also have a meta game. So they have particular uh, regularly used strategies that are good because of slight imbalances in the game or something like that. You know, there's a huge amount of depth to these games. 
but equally so these games can be very open to casual play as well you can have simply say a couple of friends playing against some computers just to have a good fun you know build up a cool army work together to take out the other army um, so they can be both competitive and cooperative yeah and also some of these strategy games have a campaign mode which is more like a story mode um, so particularly if the game is historical based then you might have campaigns and, and stories and missions that are based on real events otherwise some games have uh, you know an entirely fictional story maybe with a particular character that you actually play through the campaign even though it's a strategy game where you're dealing with things on a large level sometimes they have individual characters in the storyline and some of the games we're going to discuss today do actually have some really good storylines despite the fact that gameplay is very much front and foremost as a as a main theme throughout these types of games and i guess as a final note that the thing about strategy games or what i love about strategy games is the replayability like they are designed to be played over and over and over again and maybe that's in 15 minutes or half an hour or whatever you can finish a game and immediately start again and play again and even against the computer it will never be the same game the sign of a good rts game is being able to play the same game with the same civilization over and over and over again and not be bored yeah exactly oh i guess it's worth mentioning how we've ordered these and the answer is in no particular order. These are not ranked from best to worst, or, um, you know, these aren't particularly games that we think are, without a doubt, the best real-time strategy games of all time in the world. These are very much our favourite RTS games, personally, rather than the definitive best examples of RTS games. Although, the argument can definitely be made that some of these would be considered the best. Exactly. And actually, the first game that we're going to talk about is is definitely up there um, amongst the best. I, I, I would say it's certainly the granddaddy of most RTS games. Yeah, and that is Age of Empires 2, The Age of Kings. And then the expansion pack, The uh, the Conquerors. Yes. And this is the second game in a series of games, of which there were three. But the second game is really the... It's the pinnacle of the series, and it's the one that other strategy games, both of the time and even today, are compared against. Absolutely. It was very much a, not so much a groundbreaking game as it, as it was a fully polished, realized version of what an RTS of the time wanted to be. It really took everything about the genre that was already established by, say, the previous game of Age of Empires and other games before it and made it just right. It added so much to it in the sense that there was so many more civilizations to choose from. There was lots of more tech options. Uh, the units were more varied and there was more combat action. Buildings and, uh, and villager management felt much fresher. Everything was really well refined. And that shows even through to today where some of the innovations that Age of Empires 2 made still show in modern RTSs today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, Age of Empires 2 is one of the games that I that really even started me playing PC video games. I remember playing a demo of it early on when it was when it came out. Even playing the demo, I just played that over and over and over again. There's plenty of depth in Age of Empires, so it's set. It's a historical. Is it medieval? Uh, it, it's very much a medieval themed game even though like you're supposedly starting the dark ages and ending the imperial age yeah that's right but for the most part it's very much it's knights it's bowmen it's it's horseback riders you know it's things it's siege engines it's castles it's that style of theme uh and you you play throughout how many civilizations is it i think i wrote it down 
um, 18 civilizations to choose between. So, and they're all historical based. So you have like, you can play as the Britons, you can play as the Celts, the Byzantines, and they all play quite significantly different to each other as well. There's a lot of common ground between them where like technology and basic units are the same, but they all have a kind of a style of play that lends itself to different ways of playing. What made Age of Empires really fun to sort of play those different civilizations and try different things out is that different civilizations had different sets of units they could have. So there was a sort of common set of units and then that would be restricted. So one civilization might only be able to build most of the infantry and not really be able to build any types of archers, whereas another civilization would be able to build almost everything, but they would not have any particular perks that would make those units better. Another thing that really made this game stand out for me, especially at the time, and this is very much a given nowadays, is its ease of multiplayer. It was very simple to use. There wasn't a lot of faffing about. Like back in the day, online multiplayer was really haphazard. It was simple to find your friend and play with your friends for a good length of time. Matches could last anywhere from half an hour to several hours at once. Uh, and I believe you could even save the games multiplayer. Uh, and then start up again, you know, which you think nowadays that's pretty obvious. Like, oh, of course you can do that. Why wouldn't you be able to? But this is before Steam and cloud saves and all that kind of thing. This is, you know, dial-up internet access with direct IP access to each other. You know, it was it was pretty big deal. And it made multiplayer RTS games a real thing. Mm. Yeah, it did have a very solid game engine and a very solid network protocol for communicating for multiplayer games. Um, and even games today struggle with that. Like there Definitely. aren't that many multiplayer game strategy games that let you save your game and resume it later. Considering how old it is, Age of Empires 2 was released in September of 1999. So this is an old game. But, you know, there are still things that Age of Empires 2 did that some modern games don't do. You know, they've regressed almost. Definitely. Uh, and that, that I think maybe that's due to the technology become easier sense with cloud saving, that they've not worked as hard to make that robustness as much anymore. The next game on our list, which leads on quite nicely from Age of Empires 2, because it was actually released at, well, it was released before, two days before Age of Empires 2, but it's a vastly different game. Um, and that is Homeworld, which was a real-time space strategy game set in full 3D space. And it was made. Is it Re it's Relic, isn't it? Homeworld. It was yeah, Relic's Relic. first game, and Relic appears several times on this list. In fact, uh, of our personal favourite games. Uh, and wow, what a first game it was! It was absolutely astounding. It was one of the, if not the first RTS games that offered fully three D space movement. You weren't just top down on a black field like you were in other space RTS games. You controlled all your ships in fully 3D space. You could move them up, down, left, right, you name it, you could move them in that direction. Although the game did default you to a kind of like a, a level plane, but you could control up and down as much as you wanted. It was also a game that had a phenomenally good campaign and story. Um, it has some really great cinematic moments, even though it's a strategy game and you're actually just looking at spaceships moving around and some voiceovers. It had some really, really good cinematics, especially for the time. It definitely did. It employed these really lovely kind of like sketch artwork drawings to represent certain things within the universe that, that the limited game engine, especially the textures, if you look at them today, 
that they're quite dated couldn't really represent in a believable way and they couldn't almost certainly couldn't afford to have say you know fully rendered 3d cutscenes as well so they opted for these beautiful pieces of artwork with this quite moving music and these kind of like relatively ominous voiceovers where age of empires maybe set the standard for rts multiplayer even though it did have a strong single player campaign homeworld went the other way its multiplayer was a little bit stilted at times if not quite fun its single player was where it's at though for this game yeah i think the multiplayer lacked a little bit of depth compared to something like age of empires 2 but the good thing about homeworld is that they've released a remastered version which is a fully remastered game engine, fully remastered cinematics. The cinematics we've described have been improved, vastly improved. They actually re-recorded a lot of the voices as well, um, got the original people back in to redo some of the voices. And the, the remaster is exceptionally good. And you get the second game as well. Absolutely, which is another uh, bonus. I guess the other limiting thing about Homeworld, and this is by no means a detracting from it, I sound like I'm just only talking bad things, but is that you've only got, what, two or three different types of civilization, if you like? Yes, that's right. I believe the first game only offered you two, and the third, the second game did offer you a third one. Then there's a little bit of variation in them, in the way they play, but very often than not, it, there's quite a lot of similarity to them. So maybe that's a weaker aspect of the game, but you could argue then that they've just really worked hard on the few that you have yeah exactly and actually the units were great and they all had great character and you can remember you know you can remember the ion cannons and the you know the different types of frigates and the resource gathering units and you know they actually the the way that the units look still stick in my mind now like i can remember what the different ships look like you could show me a homeworld ship and i'll be like oh that's a that's one of these you know like they're very memorable even though they're spaceships like they're only spaceships they're only spaceships but they have a very distinctive art style to them and all the civilizations within the game even the non-playable ones have a very distinct art style as well as the game itself does too uh, you'd think a game set entirely in space would be very dull to look at it's just black backgrounds on you know metal ships but it's a really beautiful game you summed it up very nicely in our like pre-show notes that it's very much the uh, opposite of black space you know it's very bright and colorful there's like nebulas and the stars and the suns and you know there's like these asteroid fields and dust clouds it's all very alive and vibrant despite the fact that it's like open desolate space yeah definitely definitely i mean I, i i do remember being absolutely blown away by homeworld especially when you come from something like age of empires 2 where it's fine and it's great but homeworld is just you know it's just on another level it is stunning and um, when you get to see those big space battles play out with the the missiles flying and the ion cannons raging and ships are on fire and blowing up it looks spectacular and it feels very epic we've discussed two games that are very different but are from exactly the same time period and then the next title in our list is a little bit further into the future um, and is actually from 2003 and that is Rise of Nations. Rise of Nations feels like the successor to Age of Empires, which Age of Empires 3 just didn't seem to live up to. It really did take that formula of true RTS, like resource management and base building and civilizations and tech trees, and just expanded it and made it really, really deep. Something that all the games so far, and maybe even all the games on this list as a whole, haven't really matched since 
the different technologies and the different kind of civics, uh, not civics, but uh, what what would they be called? Like the, the four different... Research trees? Research trees, yeah. Civics, commerce, military, and science. They all have different kind of like um, strategies and tail to them. And then you've got the excellent um, kind of like territory cam- uh, mechanics of the game. It added a lot of extra content that took RTS to the next level of RTS. When I think of Rise of Nations, I think of Age of Empires plus the Civilization series, the turn-based strategy games, Civilization, because there are so many things in Rise of Nations, good things, that they have taken heavy inspiration from Civilization for that have both streamlined it and also expand, expanded its depth. Um, things like in Age of Empires 2, um, when you're gathering resources like wood and food, your villagers, which are your units that gather the resources, go up to a tree. They have a chopping action at the tree for a minute or so, and then they walk back to your base with the wood that they have harvested. And that lends itself quite well to some aspects of micromanagement about making sure those villagers move quickly and you know don't have too far to walk because that increases the time that your resources are collected. But in Rise of Nations... The, when you're collecting resources, it's just a constant increments, like a number, like plus 11 per 10 seconds or whatever it is. And that's very civilization. That's sort of, you know, it's just a number. So you've got villagers and they are gathering resources, but they're gathering it at a consistent rate. You've gone is the, blocks. yeah, gone is the micromanagement of moving them around and that kind of thing. And also the depth of that research, that tech tree, that's also very, you know, turn-based, very civilization-based. Even just the way, like you mentioned, the territory system, which is very rare, really, in in real-time strategy games, to have a system in place where where you build your base and your cities, that affects the territory that you control. And what they did that was really clever with that was that they added the concept of attrition, which means that enemy units that come into your territory start taking damage unless they have a supply wagon with you completely changes the dynamic around certain types of strategies that no longer are as effective. For example, in games like Age of Empires and StarCraft, both of those games, there is a heavy emphasis on rushing and uh, and attacking early to disrupt your opponents. And that's quite a pinnacle strategy to games like Age of Empires and StarCraft. But in Rise of Nations, that's kind of softened a bit because of this attrition. Um, so that lends itself better to broader games, longer games, games where there's a lot more going on, there's a lot more opportunities for, you know, massive battles and games that run through the entire tech tree from start to finish. Um, so you can tell that they were that's what they were really emphasising. They were emphasising massive games going all the way through from start to finish because that's the other great thing about Rise of Nations is that unlike something like Age of Empires, you're going from the Dark Ages but all the way up to the modern age and beyond it did allow for a very varied style of play throughout the ages. There's eight individual ages within the game as well. Uh, and all the units kind of upgrade and become aesthetically different depending on the age as well. Different nations have different units that unlock at different ages as well. All the nations have unique traits and units too with each of the ages. So there's there's a lot of variation. And like you say, it does lend itself to a longer feeling RTS game where many of the more competitive RTS games, especially like I say, Age of Empires and StarCraft, uh, were all about the kind of the quick, fast, early game. Mm. 
I actually had a question for you about Rise of Nations because the only thing that I feel is not so great about Rise of Nations is the balance. I feel like maybe Rise of Nations struggles to maintain a well-balanced game because of the huge breadth of game mechanics and what's going on. You know, everything from wonders to research to all the different types of units to the different civilizations and ages and that kind of thing. There's so much stuff there. I feel like it struggles a little bit with balance. What do you think? I agree with you entirely, and I think it's the kind of game you're probably more likely to play against several computer opponents or with a friend against computer opponents rather than acting as a competitive game because of that reason. It goes on for such a long time that the balance issue becomes a problem where one person maybe gets a slight edge at the beginning. That edge is created so massive over time um, because of maybe the fact that they just know what's the more powerful of units or the better way of going forward with things. Uh, it doesn't allow itself to be as balanced as you say as uh, some other games do yeah but it's still an excellent game um, and it's aged very well and again there is also a remastered version which is fairly light on the remastering but it's still a good excuse to play the game that's for sure it's also got an absolutely fantastic single player campaign. It's a very risk style board. Um, like you control different areas of the world and you have to attack in different areas of the world have different resources in them, which gives you uh, like civilization special bonuses as well as the normal ones that they get, um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and you can spend a lot of time kind of like perfecting your army that you carry along with your, your station armies and different kind of like lands that you've conquered. Uh, and you have to make sure you don't spread yourself too thin or too thick. And it, it was, it's very unique. And I think what's interesting is the, the name of the developer is Big Huge Games. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what they've done. They've made a really big, huge game. Definitely. Uh, and that leads on well to our next game which is almost the opposite which is quite a small compact game which but has action aplenty and that is dawn of war which is part of the the warhammer universe the, the games workshop warhammer universe and this is another game created by one of our favorite rts developers relic and this is arguably one of the most revolutionary rts games ever made yeah definitely there are a lot of more modern RTS games that uh, have their roots in Dawn of War, mainly because Dawn of War is a much more micro-based and squad-based game. So it's less about building up a huge base and more about having squads of units and having map control. Because Dawn of War introduced the concept of control points on a map where you have areas of the map that are away from your starting area that you need to be able to control by capturing them with units. And that's the only type of resource that there is in the game. So these control points give you resources. So if you don't have them, then you won't be able to build units. So that means that forces combat and a very aggressive play style in Dawn of War because you cannot hide at the back where well, you can you can try but you're, you're going to have a, dis- a massive disadvantage compared to your opponent which I think is fantastic because the all the game and all the units lend themselves to fast paced combat there, there aren't really a lot of kind of like support units um, or like kind of like you know healer units or like things like that you usually have a builder type unit and you'll have some kind of infantry type and you'll have some vehicle types and then you use those to just attack your enemies uh, and generally speaking the game of the game is to either win by destroying your enemy entirely or by controlling a majority of the critical control points on the map the game lends itself to fast 
constant battle. You often find there's not much of a lull in Dawn of War, particularly because it introduced another kind of interesting mechanic to the game, which is reinforcement of squads. Um, you don't build a space marine or a you know, orc. You build a squad of them. But then when a member of that squad dies, rather than having to pull it back and like, you know, put it in the building and heal like you wouldn't say like Age of Empires 2 or in other games, you just reinforce that squad. And although it costs resources to do it, it's often better rather than have to build a brand new one and then slug it forward to the front of the field and have to buy some of its upgrades as well because you can upgrade those squads with new weapons and like leaders and grenades and things and stuff like that. And you become more attached to these individual squads rather than just having a mostly faceless army of the same dude yeah definitely you you care a lot more about your units in dawn of war because there are so fewer of them and because you go on a journey with them in the sense that you upgrade them and as you say you have leader units and stuff like that i i think dawn of war we could talk about for an entire episode because it's so important it does have some of its foibles like the tech just certainly have not aged well. Like, no. <laughs> if you will play it now, especially by comparisons to, say, Dawn of War 2, which we, I think, is just as good, but wasn't maybe as revolutionary as the original. There's one other thing that Dawn of War added um, that we haven't mentioned, and it didn't use it to its fullest effect, but it did inspire a lot of other games, and that's the, the cover mechanic or the defense mechanic, where yes. if your units are in a vulnerable, say, a lower position, um, then they will have a disadvantage and similarly if they are in some kind of cover or some higher position they will have an advantage and actually age of empires 2 did that you had there was a height advantage in age of empires 2 but dawn of war really cemented that as a thing that was part of your tactics you know it was very much a core of how you played the game and how you managed your units um, and things like company of heroes which was also made by relic really took all of those things that we've just described and condensed them even further and made more out of them and many more games since dawn of war they made it a point that you don't individually control the members of the squad you control the squad as a whole and the squad moves as one but then they when they finish moving they will choose a spot that is most advantageous so if you tell them to go into cover they will all get into cover completely rather than maybe just the front line then the rest of them just stand up normally um so the, the ai is fairly clever in where it wants to position its units and and then in later games in dawn of war 2 which refined it even further you were able to position them to face in certain directions as well so that they could be looking in one direction for say like heavy weapon setups and stuff like that mm. now there are two more games on our list and i'm i really like this list because these two games in last games in particular are kind of not wild cards well they are kind of wild cards they're not the same as any of the games that we've just described and the first one of those is World in Conflict, which is a game from 2007. Now, this is a game that I know that you feel very strongly about because you're a huge fan of World in Conflict. So why don't you tell us why World in Conflict is so different and interesting compared to the other games we've described? Absolutely. World in Conflict is a game it's set in the Cold War. So, and it's kind of like an alternate history where Russia goes ahead and attacks America during the Cold War. Think like, uh, is it is it... Uh, Red Dawn, the, the film where like the US, sorry, the USSR invades the Americas, uh, and you're tasked with kind of defeating this menace. But the game is is sort of an RTS, but it it, it doesn't really have any base kind of mechanics or doesn't have any kind of resource gathering. You trickle up resources, uh, which then you use 
on squads. And once you, when you have squads in the field, you don't gain any more resources. And the idea is, is that it, you are limited to what you can have in the field at any one time. But then if your units are then destroyed, your units, your resources will tick back quite quickly because it wants to get you back in the game. People are likened World in Conflict to the first person shooters of the RTS world. You know, you have to play in teams. So it isn't like a 1v1 type of thing. You have to play in, say, 3 by 3 by 3 or 5v5. And even that was a huge change from so many of the real-time strategy games that had come out before it. World in Conflict is always just one team versus another team with a very, very strict goal of get your opponent's resources to zero, get their reinforcement counters to zero. And every time a unit on your opponent, on your enemy side dies and you, you gain the points, um, their points tick down. When their points hit zero, you win. Um, there isn't any kind of like bases to destroy or anything. You, you work on a fully destructible map. You kind of spawn in in certain areas. You can kind of you have drop zones that you can utilize to kind of drop in your your units. And then one of the other things that is really interesting about World, World of One World in Conflict, which is very different to most RTS games, is it kind of makes you choose a class. I guess you could call it. Yeah. Like a role. A role. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and they represent kind of different branches of the military that you'll be playing as. So you're either uh, an infantry player, a armored player, which are things like your tanks, a air player, which is mostly helicopters, uh, or a support player, which is things like repair vehicles and artillery. And then it's all about kind of like a a rock paper scissors kind of thing because infantry are really really strong against uh, air units. But air units are really strong against tanks, and tanks are really strong against the infantry, and support are really good unless they're getting close fights, you know. So it relied on on working together to mitigate each other's failings. Yeah, it, so it really distilled a lot of the strategy and the tactics of RTS games. I mean, some people don't even call it a real-time strategy game because it is lacking so many of the features of a real-time strategy game. But I think that it is. I think it's an RTS. It's real-time and there's a massive amount of strategy involved. Absolutely. The the maps lend themselves to strategy as well. Mm. They're, They're designed in such a way that movement and placement of certain types of units from certain roles at certain points in the game is very important. Uh, and one other thing I'd like to touch on, I don't want to kind of go on too much about it because I can gush about this game. I love it to death. <laughs> I played the beta to death and I got really into the competitive scene of it. It was really, really fun. But one of the things that I think makes the game stand out even more so was uh, it, what we call TAs, tactical aids. And every time you did something in the game, be it kill a unit or capture an objective or something like that, you got TAs, tactical, tactical assists. And they are kind of like kill streaks in like your kind of modern Call of Duty games, where the more you have, the more powerful your your effects are. So, for example, for five points, which is very low, you might be able to get some airborne troops kind of drop in, which would be really useful, say, capturing a far off objective that you're nowhere near, uh, or maybe like a mid range one, where like an airstrike come down, like a tank buster strike and kill a load of tanks. But then, like you save up all your points to the very end, you can drop like tactical nukes and almost end the game just there and then on your own. And you had to save up for those points or do whatever you want. And that relied on you to work with your teammates so that you didn't, say, waste your TA on something they're about to do as well. You know, so you'd have to communicate and say, like, I want to use this one. Can you use this in advance so that I know where they are? Like a, a surveillance one or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there were a lot of good strategy aspects to World in Conflict, definitely. And one last thing. 
I'm not going to gush anymore off of it. <laughs> I promise. But the single player was really, really good as well. The game didn't lend itself to good single player because obviously it's such a multiplayer focused game. But the single player was very good. It had actual characters, memorable characters with good voice acting. It used some really good, fantastic u- music. And, and it had some kind of impactful scenes as well of like the horrors of war gone into a, like a, a civilian zone, you know, on, on like the American soil. Mm, that's cool. So our final game of this list really is a wild card. Um, it's actually the oldest game. It's older than Homeworld. And that is Populous the Beginning. We will admit we are definitely using the term RTS uh, very loosely for Populous the Beginning because it's kind of a cross between a real-time strategy game and a god game. But it really deserves a mention because there are some, particularly when you consider that it's the oldest game on this list, it's had a full... 3D perspective. It had a full round, like spherical 3D map. It had morphable and unchangeable terrain. Like there were so many things about Populous that were that were groundbreaking for 1998 that actually you didn't even see for ages afterwards. No, definitely. And the gameplay of Populous at the beginning was very different to the gameplay of the other games that we've just described. I think you described it, Seth, as kind of like a my first rts game yeah definitely the the game only has one kind of basic resource and that is your your braves your villager types but you create other units with them so if you've got say 10 units 10 10 braves then you can train them to become warriors but once they're warriors they're warriors and they can't be villagers again they don't do the same thing but that then means that you're not having to worry about have I got enough wood and gold? Should I be saving it for this tech tree? You know, what should I do now? You know, it, it just encourages you to go, do what you want with these units, see what happens. You can always get more, you know. It doesn't bombard you with information and tech and numbers. It just gives you an objective. And the first couple of levels kind of bring you into the game by showing you what can be done and what can be built and uh, and maybe what spells your shaman can use, which is kind of your player character almost, that have massive effects on the game. And then it kind of just lets you go, work it out yourself. What's the best way of doing it? Do I remember rightly, the populace had almost puzzles as well, like where you had to know to raise the land to walk across from one area to the other where there was water in the middle and things like that. Like it was even to that level or am I remembering wrong no you were that's very right and there were there were sometimes like there's the obvious objective you know go and kill the, you, your enemy you know and you've got to do it in, with these units like you can't use these units this time maybe or can't use these spells but they'll often be like slightly hidden maybe challenge things that like give you bonuses if you get to them like you might find a certain spell that will really help or you might be able to like get yourself a new building type which will make the doing a lot easier and just maybe you've got to be a little bit creative, like, say, building a bridge or deforming the land or converting enough of the enemy to be able to do that, something like that. Mm. It was it was a very fun game. It didn't take itself very seriously. It's very charming. 100%. 100%. I know that a lot of people say that with Populous, it's actually better to play it with cheat codes because it comes from an era of sort of cheat codes and secrets in games. It really does. You can activate a cheat code that just gives you every spell at the start. So you can just cast lightning and deform the terrain and make volcanoes appear and all of that kind of thing. Because it's it's a strategy game and it's a god game and it's slightly a sandbox game in a way because you can you can have some fun. You can muck around with the with the game and the and the different scenarios and stuff. But it still had a multiplayer. It still had a multiplayer uh, yeah. mode that you could play. Although that wasn't the main part of it. 
if you both knew how to play the game decently well, it could lead for some fairly tense fights because it was quite fast-paced once you knew what you were doing. So we've gone from the yardstick in real-time strategy games, Age of Empires 2, right the way through space games, squad games, and all of those innovations. And we've come all the way back down to the oldest game, which was a a sort of fun real-time strategy come God game. We feel that that you know that's a that's a good selection of of strategy games there it's not you know it's not everything we haven't covered every game there are definitely games that are technically better or reviewed better or are more popular but they're the games that we think really stand out in the real time strategy video game genre and they're all unique in their own way they bring something new to the table and yeah we we like like you said Jal, we we missed off some of the big ones we missed off starcraft you know how could we miss off starcraft we missed off uh, the total war series we missed off Command and Conquer. Command and Conquer series. We love all these games. We really do. And we were agonizing over how many games to add to this list and what to talk about. But ultimately, we decided it's more interesting to discuss interesting games that we loved playing, not necessarily the technically best games. Yeah. But if you feel like we've missed a game that deserves its place in this list of genre-defining games, then let us know. Uh, you can email us at show at octal.fm. You can tweet us with a 140 character rant about how we missed off Lord of the Rings Battle for Middle Earth, which is your favorite strategy game, maybe. Um, and that's at octal.fm. And of course, you can always download other episodes of octal.fm by visiting the website, which is octal.fm. And maybe in the future, we'll do another episode maybe on strategy games because something that came up a lot for me whilst doing the research was my absolute love of turn-based strategy games. Ooh. You know, we touched on it with mentioning Civilization a little bit, but I mean, maybe I could do a whole episode on XCOM. Come, coming soon. You know? <laughs> I love me some XCOM. I love me some Advance Wars and Fire Emblem. You know, just putting that out there. Well, you'll have to subscribe to the podcast and find out, you know, to find out when we discuss those things. But we hope you enjoyed our list. Uh, it's certainly been a blast talking about some old games that we haven't played for a long time and then playing them for the research. That was pretty cool. That was fun, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Gelada. And I'm Sucking. And you've been listening to Octal FM. Mm-hmm.